This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you very much. Um, so it's a pleasure to give this talk. This is work that we've been doing for a little bit of time now. Uh, just put, put the results out recently. Um, but the topic is current. It's going to come up again for sure at the next Democratic primary debates. And I thought it would be useful to put some of this stuff out and, and uh, see what you think. OK. So I want to start out by pointing out that manufacturing jobs are politically important. It should not be surprising, given what happened the last election cycle. Uh, we can think about the second presidential debate in which President Trump went after Secretary Clinton and said, you supported trade agreements. Trade agreements cost us jobs in the industrial Midwest. And her response to that was, well, we supported trade agreements. Trade agreements create exports, and exports create jobs. Okay. Um, I've been studying jobs for a long time and their connections to things like exports. And at that point, uh, it felt to me like the, the tide had turned a little bit because for people listening in the industrial Midwest, the argument that exports create a lot of jobs and trade agreements create exports that create jobs didn't seem like it was going to wash okay? because that is not the experience of, of people in those communities. And these were communities that President Trump and uh, Vice President Pence were visiting with some frequency Right? And doing things like going to plants that were thinking of uh, relocating to Mexico and uh, raising hell about it and saying, if you go to Mexico, you know, there will be consequences. Don't do it. Now, the interesting thing about that is that, of course, once the photo op opportunity passes, um, the protest leaves its mark, the jobs stay for a while. Quite often, the jobs go anyway plants relocate later. So the economic pressure to actually move manufacturing jobs to other parts of the world is real, and it's quite strong. So back then, we had the story. On, so that's on the, and so on, on, on the Republican side, the debate really has sort of gone in a direction that is fairly antagonistic towards trade, towards other countries, and pretty aggressive in negotiating policies. On the Democratic side, we had a, pre a presidential primary debate a few weeks ago, during which I don't recall hearing a single candidate stand up and say, I am for free trade. Okay? Uh, they mostly said that they had problems with trade agreements. Uh, and a few of them did stand up and say, you know, it's really important that we protect manufacturing jobs. Lesson learned. Politically, you cannot run for president and not say something about how you're going to protect manufacturing jobs. But when it came to how they were going to do it, they, like President Trump, seemed to be coming up short on exactly how this was going to work. Right? And so this sort of leaves this open question of, well, why have these jobs gone other places? Where have they gone? And what, if anything, will bring them back? Okay. 
So let's first start with a bit of data. Okay, so I, I'm an economist, and so I am going to present a fair amount of data to you today, but I'm going to try and do it in a way that, 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 that you can follow along. Okay? So stay with me. Uh, strongly urge you not to space out for, for even a few seconds. Okay? But, but if you stay with me, I'll, I'll get you through it. I want to focus on this line here. I'm colorblind, but I believe this is red or it's brown. Okay? So this red or brown line captures what's measured on the, on the right-hand right side axis, which is the fraction of US jobs that are in manufacturing. Right? So that number peaked right after World War II at something approximating 40%. So around 40% of US workers at the end of World War II worked in factories. That number has gone into a very steep decline. Of, sorry, not, I should not say steep. It's gone into a very persistent decline over a long period of time to the point where it's down to 8%. Okay? But also note that, uh, and this will help us later on, uh, we're going to call this number the manufacturing employment share, okay? the fraction of workers who are, who are employed in factories. And this number, if you were to follow this line back, would have started lower, gone up as the United States industrialized, peaked, and then come down, which is a fairly normal pattern. And it's one that we're going to return to. Okay? So this is what's, what's happened. The jobs really have gone. Question is, where, why? Okay? Who ate my job? Okay? So there are two narratives that are often contrasted with each other, and they do have fairly different political and policy implications. One narrative is globalization ate my job. Okay? And so this is the story that says these jobs went to some developing country, typically where the wages are uh, a lot lower. Right? Um, and this is a story uh, that is told by people who have actually participated in the process. So I have spoken to uh, people who have been manufacturing workers, union representatives, who have said, look, we have had to actually take our machines that we worked on for 20 years, put them in crates, write an instruction manual for whoever's going to receive it on how to do my job, and then we sent the job to Mexico, we sent it to China, whatever. Right? So that's the globalization did it story. And then there's a different story. The other story is that it's automation. Right? That, no, a robot ate my job. Okay? And so you have you know, this sort of classic image. Here's the car factory. has almost nobody working in it. It's robots. So, which one, so the debate is often pitched as which one is it. Okay? And why that matters is because you know, if you think that globalization did it, you're likely to take the stance that globalization, trade liberalization, has not been good for you as an American worker. Right? Um, and maybe we need to do something about that. Right? So take a tough negotiating position with other countries, maybe shut down some trade, etc. Um, if you think that automation did it, well, foreign policy isn't going to save you. The problem is automation, and what we all need to do now is either ban the robots, unlikely to happen, so start retraining, everybody go to college, and prepare for a job in the services sector. Okay? So these are the two stories, and we're often told, you know, you need to choose which one is it, which side are you on. Um, I'm going to try and get us away from this false dichotomy. I think, I think the dichotomy is a false one. And I also want to push a little bit harder to say, let's just answer a few questions about these stories. So automation. Look, you could automate lots of things. You could automate the flipping of hamburgers, but we haven't done it. Right? Uh, you can automate cars, and we have done it. So why? 
right? Why do we automate some things and not others? You, if you're gonna say it's globalization, well, the question is, well, what is it about globalization? What made it happen? One argument, set of arguments hinges on quote-unquote unfair trade deals. These are trade deals that supposedly the developing world came to the negotiating table and just outmaneuvered the United States in negotiations, gave up relatively little, right? There uh, opened US borders to their goods and without doing the converse for them. And so those unfair trade deals are what have cost the United States. I won't say a lot about that. I can take questions on that later, but my sense of it is that's not really how trade negotiations work. The United States was never seen, has never been seen as a pushover at the negotiating table. Um, the further argument is, you know, that there are, there are low labor standards in developing countries, and so it's cheaper to produce there, and so if you take down the trade barriers, corporations will ship the jobs overseas. Now, one, one, so there's something to some of these arguments. I'm not going to tell you all of these arguments are false, but I just want to cast some doubt on how much explanatory power they have. So if it's unfair trade deals and low, low labor standards, you know, let's take, let's take the view of Ross Perot, who, uh, regret to say, passed away last week. Um, but uh, Mr. Perot, when he was running for president, talked about how if once NAFTA was signed, there would be a giant sucking sound of US jobs moving to Mexico, right? Um, because of these. Now, NAFTA got signed in 1993. Um, in 1990, Mexico had a manufacturing employment share of about 19 point something percent, that is 19 point something percent of Mexican workers worked in factories, 1990. 1993 and after signed, by 2000, that number is 19 point something percent, and by 2010, that number's fallen to 17 point something percent. So if there was a giant sucking sound, those jobs, well, they may have got sucked to Mexico, but then where are they? Why aren't they in Mexico? Well, Mexico, it turns out, had some of its job go, jobs go to China, and China had some of its jobs go, go to Vietnam, and Vietnam had some of its jobs go to Bangladesh, and Bangladesh had some of its jobs go to Myanmar. This is a constant thing that is happening. Jobs are on the move, right? Um, so it's not just a US concern. And it's not entirely clear, right, that if you, a priori, and I'll show you the research, our research on this, that if you look around, you'll be able to you know, find our jobs somewhere else. It's not even clear what our jobs are, right? Maybe you could trace a few machines as they move in shipping containers, but that's about the best you could do. Otherwise, factories close here, factories open there, are they the same jobs? Who knows, right? Um, the other argument is currency manipulation, and the argument here is that you have countries, particularly in East Asia, uh, that have tried to maintain the value of their currency artificially low, because if your currency is cheap, then other people, let's say American buyers, can buy your currency with, by giving up relatively few US dollars. And so they can buy your manufactured exports for relatively few US dollars. And it makes, your, it makes your products cheap and competitive. And so the argument goes that by doing this, these countries have stolen US jobs. Okay? Now these are, not these are not arguments that serious economists are making. These are arguments that are very much alive in public discourse. Okay? Um, there are problems with each of them. I've already indicated sort of the problem with the unfair trade deals. Not, we don't really have evidence that the trade deals were really weighted in favor of developing countries against, against rich countries. Um, the low labor standards do exist. It's, that's true. Uh, but we can't trace in very clear ways where those jobs 
have, have gone, although I will show you some data as we go. Um, and the currency manipulation argument, well, if that were true, then if we could just get countries to stop manipulating currencies, the US trade deficit would shrink and we would get some of those jobs back. The fact of the matter is we tried to do this in 1985. So we had the Plaza Accords, the Japanese yen got revalued upwards. Japan was required to value its currency upwards. It agreed at the negotiating table to do it. And the effect on US manufacturing jobs was basically nothing. Okay? So this kind of narrative, even if it is true that the jobs have, are not in the US and are in developing countries, these kinds of reasons aren't going to lead us to policies that help from a US perspective to fix the problem. So another question I want to ask is, well, so was it something else? And if so, what? Why do these jobs go to other places? Or did they just disappear, vanish into the ether because robots ate them? So these are the questions I want to take on. Now, before I get into some data and kind of try to tease that apart, I want to make one other thing clear. This business of not enough manufacturing jobs, this is not an American problem. Of course, it's also a European problem, but it's not even a rich world problem. It's a whole world problem. Every country, every government, Right? that is serious about development and employment, is, has some kind of a national manufacturing policy on the table, and they all put jobs at the center of it. China does, India does, right? and all of them are failing to achieve massive job growth. Okay? So why? What's going on? Okay? All right. So here are the questions I want to take on. First of all, we need to ask whether all this is really a bunch of fuss about nothing. Are manufacturing jobs actually different from other kinds of jobs? Okay, so uh, at the start of the George W. Bush administration, the chief economist for the, for the Bush administration, Greg Mankiw, once famously or inf infamously said, I don't know what all the fuss is about manufacturing jobs. Right? You say it's about making stuff. Well, fine, then is, isn't burger flipping a manufacturing job? You're making a burger. And how is it different? Okay? So I want to ask the question, are manufacturing jobs really different? There are theoretical reasons why we should think of them differently. I'll do that in question time, if, if you're interested. Um, another question, but, I, but I'm going to ask the question historically. Are countries that have had manufacturing jobs, have they had different prospects? I'm then going to ask whether other countries are likely to succeed at generating lots of manufacturing jobs. And I'm going to ask why or why not. Right? And then I'm going to re re return to this question of did a robot eat my job or was it offshored? Okay? So these are the things I want to get, get at. Okay? Um, and the surprising thing about this is you would think these are questions that, you know, they're so important we should have answers to them. It turns out that the world's data infrastructure in terms of counting what people do at work is actually in pretty bad shape. Okay? And so what we did, my collaborator, Jesus Felipe, and myself, is we got, got to work taking a whole bunch of data from different sources, tracking how many manufacturing jobs different countries had. We tried to check them all out for consistency to make sure that we were actually comparing apples to apples, that these that these numbers were really comparable to each other over time and across countries. And we collated the first data set capable of actually answering these questions. Okay? And so we got a data set that covers 
83% of the world's population, I'm gonna call that the world for the rest of today, 63 countries, all the big ones in there, 83% of the world's population, and we're gonna look at manufacturing employment levels between 1970 and 2010. And in addition to manufacturing employment levels, we're also gonna look at the share of your GDP that comes from manufacturing. Because one of the questions that comes up is if you can't have a lot of manufacturing jobs because robots are eating them, then maybe that's okay because the robots will create lots of manufacturing output and maybe having manufacturing production itself, even if it's done by robots, will make you a rich country. Okay? So we wanted to try and put together data on the employment and the output side to look at how important manufacturing has been over time for different countries and then what that does. Okay? So let's start with, before I, before I can show you the data, I need to just introduce you to one bit of technical apparatus. Okay? And that is a standard development path. So remember how I showed you that in the United States, right? Um, we had to the left of the graph before before the time series began, the United States had generally lower levels of manufacturing employment that steadily climbed until around 1945 when they hit about 40% and then they came down. Right? Now we're tracking basically that process for a generic country. Okay? But on my horizontal axis here, instead of time, I've got per capita GDP. So I'm looking at the income level of a country, which is going to be highly correlated with the wages that are paid in that country. So as you move along this axis, this country is getting richer. And then here, I'm measuring the share of employment, typically, that comes from manufacturing. But I could also look at the share of the country's GDP that comes from manufacturing production. And so what happens is when countries start out at low levels of per capita income, so they're poor, they also tend to have low levels of manufacturing employment because they're not particularly adept at manufacturing, they haven't made the investments in it, uh, they don't have the know-how. And so they're not doing a lot of it, they don't have a lot of workers in factories. Over time they start to industrialize, and as they industrialize they get better and better at it. Um, and as they do, because they're more productive, because because they've got these factory jobs, uh, their GDP increases and they start to create jobs in factories and so they're moving in a diagonal direction along this graph. And so over time, countries industrialize. They get richer, moving to the right, and they become more industrial in employment terms, moving upwards and so they move in this direction. And this keeps on going for a while. But then they get to a point where their per capita GDP is starting to get high. And as your wages rise, something happens you start to get too rich to compete. So your wages are high and people look, look around and say, hmm, I think manufacturing in China is getting really expensive. This started to happen around 2007, 2010 in China. And at that point, a whole bunch of manufacturers started to say, you know what we gotta do? We gotta move to Vietnam. And so when, that's, when that kind of thing starts to happen, right? And it wasn't just Vietnam, obviously, but when that sort of thing starts to happen, the share of employment that's in manufacturing starts to come down. The country will keep getting richer, but it's doing so without the benefit of further industrial growth, at least in employment terms. Okay? So that's your standard development path. And so we have here what's, what we're going to refer to as the peak, peak industrialization. And this is the per capita income. This coordinate is the per capita income at which the country peaked. And this coordinate is the uh, fraction of workers. It's a manufacturing employment share at which it peaked. Everything I'm gonna do now is just tracing these historically for countries to see what's happened. So let's start with our first question. Are manufacturing jobs really different 
I'm going to say yes, they are. Okay? And I'm going to ask two sub-questions that add up to yes, manufacturing jobs are different. I'm going to ask whether countries that produce a lot of industrial output uh, have increased their odds of getting rich implicitly even if they didn't have the manufacturing jobs. If just having the output, doing it with robots, right? if you just had a lot of output, did you get rich? And the answer is no, not without the jobs. Second, can countries get rich by creating services jobs? So if it's getting hard to do manufacturing jobs, and we've got to be totally honest here, we're in, we've entered into an era of actual climate change in real time. Uh, everybody trying to industrialize is an environmental disaster. So we need to start asking the question, are there other ways that countries can achieve prosperity and beat poverty? Right? And so can they do it by creating services jobs? And unfortunately, the answer we have is that none, zero, have so far. Okay, so let me first give you the evidence on that. Okay, so the first thing that we did, okay, I'll ask you to focus on this on the left-hand side graph. I've taken each country, each of our 63 countries, and on the horizontal, I've, I've, I've taken the peak manufacturing employment share. So there's Hong Kong, and this is the peak share that they achieved between 1970 and 2010. So Hong Kong, at the, which had already peaked by around 1970, peaked at about 43% of its jobs in factories, a highly industrial economy. The United States is somewhere in this, in this mess there, right? You can't quite see it, but at that point, it's under 30% because we're already on, the, uh, on our long decline by 1970. Here's Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Malawi with very, very low levels of manufacturing employment shares. They, between and so bear in mind that when we compare these countries, we're comparing them at different points in time. We're just saying, what's the maximum you ever got during this time frame? And plotting it there. And we may be plotting that maximum at different times. Right? They may have hit that peak at different, different times. And then on this axis, we're saying, OK, what was your per capita GDP between 2005 and 10? Don't be alarmed by the log and the fact that these numbers don't seem to reflect any units you know. It's simply more is better, more is richer. Okay, just think of it that way. And so what you've got here is, I think, one of the closest relationships I've seen ever in any inter-country comparison I've ever studied in economics. Having had a lot of manufacturing jobs is highly predictive. And so having had lots of manufacturing jobs between 1970 and 2010 is highly predictive of your level of income at the end of that time period by 2005-10. And then ask, well, what if it was just output? So if you didn't have the jobs, but you were producing the output, and a lot of your GDP came from manufacturing, does that predict being rich later? Well, yes, it does, but nowhere near as strongly. So what really seems to matter is the jobs. And so then we said, let's take it one step further. Okay? Because this is such a strong relationship, we thought we better have a, have, a, have a closer look at it. So we took our 63 countries, and we split them. We actually categorized them three different ways. The first is we said, are you rich or not? So in 2005 or 10, if your per capita GDP was over $12,000, we said you're rich. All the rich countries are the ones that appear in bold. Austria, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, Greece, Luxembourg, not Mexico, Netherlands, Portugal, Australia, Finland, not Malaysia, so on and so forth. Okay? So these are all our, the bold countries are our rich countries. Then I drew a line. And I said, OK, if you peaked between, between 1970 and 2010 at less than 18% of your jobs in factories, we'll put you on the left. 
And if you peaked with more than 18% of your jobs in factories, we put you on the right. And what we find is every single rich country is on the right. There is not a single country that was rich by 2005, 2010, other than a few oil producing countries that we threw out, like Saudi Arabia, right? Not a single one that did it without having had a lot of factory jobs. That's a pretty compelling argument that you don't get rich without the jobs and none have done it through services. They've all had to have manufacturing jobs. Okay, okay. Um, now, next question. Are other countries likely to succeed at generating lots of manufacturing jobs? Our answer basically is no, okay? So let's go back to this, this graph that we, that we had earlier. So let's say this was the earlier line. So let's say back in the 1970s, this is what it looked like. Countries began, right, uh, at some GDP level, and as they, as they got richer and industrialized, you know, as, as they industrialized, they got richer, but then they peaked out, and they may have peaked out at a per capita GDP of something like, uh, at the time it might have been about $30,000 per capita, Right? And only then did you start losing your jobs to other countries or to wherever. And um, you did so at per capita incomes on the order of something like 30%. If you come back to this same chart and you say, okay, what's happening in 2010? The argument is that this chart has shifted downwards. That is, you start to industrialize. Instead of having achieved 30% manufacturing jobs, you're going to do it at about 18% or... 15% or 14, we'll see empirically what it is. And um, instead of industrializing until you get to about $30,000 per capita, you, you might deindustrialize something lower, 8,000 or 5,000, okay? Now, just to cut to the chase, because time is, time is short, what, what it turns out has happened is that this is in fact what has happened. These curves have moved down, but the degree to which they have moved down is shocking, okay? This used to be around 30% in 1970. Today, this is something like 12%. Far below the threshold at which it predicts that you're going to get rich, right? So very few manufacturing jobs. And this number, where it used to be something on the order of $30,000, $40,000, today is as low as about two dollars to $3,000. So once you get to two dollars to $3,000 and the wages that countries at two to $3,000 have, you start to lose your manufacturing jobs to other countries. Okay? Now, in the interest of time, I will not detail the graph, but there it is. That's the year in which you peaked. So countries that peaked later are peaking at lower levels of manufacturing employment. That's your 12% right there. Okay? And um, they're also doing it at levels of GDP that are substantially lower than the ones that industrialized early. So there is, in fact, this pervasive problem of premature industrialization. Okay? The question then is, well, why is this happening? And here I give you two answers. Right? First question is, well, first answer is because everyone's trying to do it at the same time. So the, to cut to the chase, if you took a million manufacturing jobs out of Italy, Italy's manufacturing employment share would come plummeting because there's not that many workers in Italy. You put a million manufacturing jobs in China, what does it do? Not much, right? And that's basically what's been happening. 
And if you also ask, did a robot eat my job or was it offshored, the answer seems to be a bit of both. And so here's what we did. To answer whether a robot ate my job or it got offshored, we said, instead of studying this problem one country at a time, let's take a global view. Let's get every country in the world, stack them up, and see if the manufacturing jobs actually disappeared or simply relocated. And there's a shot. Right? So in 1970, 14% of every job in the world, our 83% of the world's population, 14% of every job in the world was in manufacturing. In 2010, 14% of every job in the world was in manufacturing. Didn't really change. Okay? What changed is that the share of North America in those jobs declined, and the share that's in China and in South Asia went up dramatically. So yes, globalization did do this. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.